Hi, everybody, and welcome to Paul Lisnick Behind the Curtain. It's my chance to step away from the world of politics and law that you watch me cover on television in this world of radio world where we get to talk about a true passion, arts, theater, and related. And I, this show is really special to me because, first of all, it's about an artist that I'm going to be candid and say I didn't know a lot about. Shame on me. But that's why I wanted to be sure I introduced him to you and no better people to introduce him to you through, especially with this new book called From Hollywood to the World, than my guests who are, we'll start with, uh, Danelle Dadigan, who is, uh, she runs the Hollywood Museum, so many credentials. And then I found out that she is integral to this book because Danelle actually, am I right? Jose Iturbi, who we're going to talk about, was your godfather. That is true. Yes. So amazing. We'll talk about it. But what a treat. When I saw that the, a good portion of the, um, text of this book was written by just one of the people I have respected and loved for so many years, Michael Feinstein, on the off chance he might say, yes, I'll join you. I reached out and he's here. Hi, Michael. Thank you. You're welcome. It's my great pleasure. So, and my, our pleasure to have you. I know Danelle's happy about that too. So um, let me start with you, Danelle. I'm guessing this project began with you. So let me start with, tell tell our viewers and our listeners, because people could be watching or listening, um, tell them this was your godfather, but at the same time, who was Jose Iturbi? And what led you to say, we need to do this? I'm in front of a green screen, so I can't hold it up. This is a magnificent coffee table book. And when you open it up, there are a series of 16 CD, uh, CDs that are part of this. It's just an amazing, gorgeous gift set. Christmas ain't that far away. So tell us a little bit about who he was and how this project came about. Well, I can tell you who he was, but Michael is going to tell you how this oh, project came about. Because actually, okay. it was a phone call from Michael that got me involved in this. And I will say that I have always wanted to do something like this to honor my godfather. And my godmother, Hosea Turby's partner, oh gosh, for 38 years, if you can imagine, Marion Seabury, who was a great, great opera singer on her own. Uh, this was something we had always wanted to do. And Michael came uh, to the rescue of all of us by suggesting this. Uh, but my godfather was the first musician to sell a million copies of a record when a million copies was a very big deal uh, in the 50s. And as a result, to commemorate this milestone, he received his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Now, he always concertized. Uh, Sold-out concerts were just the regular norm for him, so much so that uh, in his 100 to 150 concerts that he performed a year, he had a very taxing schedule and sometimes up to 200, 225, 250, one year, 250 concerts. I think he was trying to break his own record doing that. Uh, he always had uh, sold out crowds as we talked about. And as a result, they put several hundred chairs on the concert stage if he was uh, in a solo recital. And there was room to accommodate these chairs. And he enjoyed sort of performing in the round, so to speak. But he really was a rock star before we knew what a rock star was. He had his own groupies. Uh, you know, it's kind of fun when you think about it. Michael and I have uh, chatted about this, how my godfather, uh, he had Bobby Soxers. And, you know, in those days, uh, Followers didn't throw underwear and lingerie on the stage. They threw scented handkerchiefs and flowers on the stage. And uh, so it was very much fun. But uh, he really was quite an extraordinary uh, person with, you know, 
over half a century of concertizing to sold out crowds. And uh, he's got, you know, his star in the Walk of Fame. He starred in MGM musicals, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into more. But Michael needs to tell the story of how this project started. Yeah, Michael, my first introduction to you a million years ago was, you know, through your your work with Gershwin and, and all of your work there and your album, Isn't It Romantic? I mean, just on and on. And by the way, there is something important I should bring up today. I'm not saying I know more about you than I should, but happy birthday, my friend. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's so, so fun. <laughs> on this special day of yours, um, yeah, how did you, see, here I thought it was probably Danelle after all, it's her godfather, but no, it's you. That shouldn't surprise me, and it doesn't. Well, for me, uh, as a kid, I discovered uh, the music of Hosea Turby uh, because I started collecting records when I was very young. And Hosea Turby, as Donnell mentioned, was one of the best-selling classical artists of his era and indeed the first classical uh, artist to sell uh, a million copies of of a single record. Uh, I think it was actually in the 1940s. And... uh, he he went on to sell uh, with uh, his record of the Chopin Polonaise in a flat actually went on that record sold a million, but then it sold multiple millions after that. The point is that Hosea Turby was not only a household name, but he was part of the lifeblood of American musical culture for many decades. He was from uh, Valencia, Spain, but became an American citizen, uh, I believe in the 1930s. And Jose was a person who was, a fiery, wonderful, flamboyant personality who was fearless in his delivery of music to the masses because he believed that that music, uh, this classical music and all music should be shared by everyone. And uh, having grown up lis- listening to his records and, and such, uh, I was working on another project with um, Sony Music, who are the successor to the masters of the RCA uh, Victor catalog. Uh, we were doing an Oscar Levant box set, and Robert Russ, the head of Sony uh, Masterworks, said, uh, what else uh, are you interested in? And I said, Jose Aturbi. And he went back and looked at, in the vaults at RCA and discovered that Aturbi had made recordings for that company going back to 1933, all the way through the yeah. 1950s. And uh, it's an extraordinary legacy of all kinds of classical music from from Bach to Beethoven to Mozart to Gershwin to the most contemporary works to Spanish and Latin composers. And he literally changed the face of classical music in America uh, because of his popularity and his musical taste and his desire that music, classical music was for everyone. And by the way, this is, I can hold this up from my green screen. This will work, but this is one of the CDs. What I love about this, of course, as you can see, you've done them as though they, I'm losing it. You've done them to make them look like old, I'm guessing 78s, maybe. Um, yeah, but you know, oh no, 33 and third. That's, that's the image. But I love that it just, you take us back to that, right? Uh, even in the design. Danelle, who designed this set? Well, you know, we're so thrilled because it really was a great collaboration between Michael Feinstein, Sony Classical, and the Hosea Turby Foundation. So uh, it, it's so extraordinary when you think about it. Michael, I feel stupid over this because, as I said, I was not familiar with him. It was when I saw your names attached to this. I went, I need to learn. Am I supposed to feel stupid? I mean, and I'd like to think of myself as a patron of the arts and, and theater and music. How did I miss this? Well, I mean, today people don't know the name Horowitz. They don't know Arthur Rubinstein. They don't know Oscar Levant. And Oscar Levant uh, so, uh, was uh, also a, a hugely best-selling 
classical artist. I mean, his although they know him through Sean Hayes now, right, and through uh, Goodnight Oscar. Yes, yes, uh, indeed. Uh, and the point is that culture moves on very, very quickly. But a legacy like this uh, will always return if somebody uh, helps to bring it back. Uh, uh, but no, he is not. Uh, he sadly is not a household name. Uh, but the legacy is secure because um, the music and the recordings are truly timeless. Agreed. And just, I've been listening to them, and just the, the reproduction of these is amazing. Uh, what they put them through to uh, to bring back the clarity—it's just beautiful. Uh, Danell, the thing is, his his life as well, and it's it's in the book. Um, man, it was. There was started with tragedy, the loss of his first wife to, and I'm not sure we, I feel like I'm giving something away from a mystery. I don't think I am, but, but we, you know, we, the, the time when he was about to do a concert and, and she dies and we don't really know if it's suicide or, or accidental death. And these mysteries remain in, in your godfather's life. I think for the public, they do remain. And, you know, um, uh, speaking to this, you know, out of sadness, one is able sometimes to delve more into the humanization of whatever their career or profession is. And I think that's one reason why the world at the time, you know, from the thirties through, you know, 1980, my goodness, half a de- a half a century, people enjoyed listening to Jose Atribi because he was able to bring that happiness and that sadness, which he had experienced all of it throughout his life. And, I think Michael made a really great point about the fact that even if you think about Vladimir Horowitz, you know, uh, Arthur Rubinstein, all these great pianists who I had the privilege of meeting at one point in time through my godfather, all of these names for the next generations, uh, we don't remember them anymore for our children and our grandchildren to know, but we remember them. And I think that's one of the most important things uh, for the Jose Aturbi Foundation in that we continue to popularize music, uh, classical music, one note at a time. And I think that's why my godfather got into wanting to do these uh, MGM musicals, because he was able to promote music to another generation. And that is why it is so important when we look at Michael, Michael Feinstein Think about this. He is the ambassador of the American songbook. Okay, Michael, you cannot reach through and slap my wrist, but I must share with everyone how important it is that we recognize what Michael is doing. He is doing exactly what is needed so that we remember these great, great songs from the American songbook. I mean, this is just incredible when you think about it, what Michael does. He is also bringing music forward to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And this is so important. So I think that's one reason Michael and I are so simpatico on this. And Danelle, it's almost as though you were looking at my notes for my next question, because Michael, I was literally going to come to you and talk about you as the preservationist of the American songbook. I think the reason I was initially embarrassed that I had not been familiar with Jose Turby is because when I saw the 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 many films, great American musicals and such that he was part of. And then I thought for a moment, went, wait a minute, there were in that time in the thirties and the forties, there were many classical artists, pianists playing themselves. He was always himself, unless I'm wrong, but I think he was always himself. That was actually kind of commonplace back then to bring classical music to the masses through musicals. Yes, that is true because in the 1930s and forties and into the fifties, Classical music was just as popular 
as popular music. If you turned on the radio in the 30s and 40s, uh, 50% of the time you would hear classical music because all of the orchestras in the different cities had broadcasts and every network had symphony orchestras and pianists on staff. So people grew up with classical music that was as well known as whatever the popular song hits were of the times. So that has vanished because of the lack of music education. You can get into all of that stuff, you know, about the lack of culture in our society. Uh, but it was a different time. And so there was more of a cross-pollinization of the different genres, even though there was indeed a great snobism. And, and Jose suffered uh, professional uh, barbs for having made these popular films, but he knew that it would bring uh, his art to larger audiences. Danelle, it also looked, first of all, the photography in this book is also stunning and amazing. So I imagine all sorts of special processes were done to, to get uh, to get those pictures in. And it's, that's one of the reasons I love the It's why it's a coffee table book. It's not just Michael's words, which carry us through and walk through the story, but um, there's a discography. There's just so many different things. My question for you is one of the things that, again, kind of surprised me is I look at the pictures. Uh, there he is with Jimmy Durante or, you know, pick your star. And, and there he is with these greats uh, all the way through. Did he himself, and you knew him, did he himself, was the passion in the direction of the classical music, or did he also have this appreciation of Hollywood and such that so many other people just get turned on by? It's a very special world. Well, you know, Paul, that's a really interesting question. My godfather, uh, he resided in Beverly Hills, yeah. and one of his neighbors was Jimmy Stewart. The other one was Lucille Ball, Jack Benny. Next to him was Harry Cohn, who owned a studio. Down the street was him, was, you know, Jean Negolesco, a very famous director of the time. But they were all enamored with Jose Aturbi because he was this concert great. Uh, he found going to the movies fun because uh, if you read Michael's essay in the book, you will know that and you will learn that and I did. my godfather, as a child, to help uh, bring uh, money into the family so that they could live a little bit easier, uh, his job was playing piano in the silent movie houses in Valencia, Spain. And uh, so he grew up seeing these you know, these uh, uh, black and white flicker of films with these large close-ups of people and then the printed text for the silent films, you know, giving the, 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 the words that the actors were saying. He grew up with that. He grew up how to uh, create music to go along with this. I mean, he was just a child at the time. So this business of filmmaking uh, was in his blood. He was never enamored of it. But all these greats from Hollywood's golden era, they all lived in the same neighborhood. They all knew each other. And each one appreciated the talents that each of them brought to the world and to the public. Yeah, and Michael, since Donnell has given you the credit for the kind of the design here of the way this looked, you know, this could have just been a book that came out, a hardcover book and very in, in your words and your story. But it, it looked as though you knew that a lot of people were not incredibly familiar with the Turby. So was it again your idea or whose idea was it to say, we need the CDs, we need to give them music, they need the photo, they need all of this to understand who Jose Turby was? It started with the music and it was the inspiration of Robert Russ, head of Sony Classical, to spend the money to create this project because 
uh, it's it was incredibly expensive to assemble a book like this mm-hmm. uh, with costs rising and rising and uh it needed to be given the elegance that Jose had as a human being and as a pianist and um so it was the collaboration uh of all of us in in the in Donnell and the Aturbi uh, Foundation helping to uh, partially fund the project and also uh, because Donnell has saved all of the memorabilia, Jose's life, uh, his memorabilia and his possessions, they still exist. So it was possible to retrieve these amazing photographs and digitize them and include them. And when Robert saw the resources that were available, uh, then it, it was uh, a tremendous gift to be able to take all of these resources and create the book. It was the art director at Sony, whose name I sadly don't remember at this moment, which always happens in the middle of an interview, you know, <laughs> uh, who uh, assembled. So uh, it, it, it is uh, really the uh, support of Sony Classical and the Aturbi Foundation that made it a reality in these times of attrition. <laughs> and Michael, I, d- I would just want to ask you, I, I know you have a conflict, so we may lose you here in a moment, but uh, if I can, just a, a comment about you, you know, again, what you, my introduction to you, I think it's Gershwin. That, that's, it was my, my love for Gershwin, but I never knew about Gershwin the way you teach me about Gershwin. And so I'm sort of curious in your own life, what came first? You're a kid growing up. I know you worked for Ira Gershwin and all that, but was the passion for this classical world already in you? Did it develop because of your connection that you made with Ira? Can you just, how did this start for you? When I was uh, young, I was exposed to classical music through uh, television and radio and being a a, a six and seven year old record collector. uh, I'd find old 78s and play these records. And I, as a a child, I didn't know the difference between uh, a Glenn Miller uh, record of In the Mood or a classical record of uh, Chopin. So I started listening to all this music as a jumble. And then as I grew older, I started to understand about the genres and the styles and the eras. So I had an interest in this music from an early age. And it was um, uh, the discovery of Rhapsody in Blue that led mm-hmm. me specifically to Gershwin. And uh, the, it just grew from there. And I've always had a passion for classical music. And in these times, uh, I feel it's important to preserve so many different types of music that uh, still exist, but with so much, with the inundation of uh, so many resources, uh, one can go on YouTube or any place on the internet, but unless somebody leads you specifically to this or that, uh, a younger person isn't going to find it. So I am very mindful of helping to create bridges so people can find what is good. And when they find it, they take it and they run with it and they listen to it and it becomes part of their lives. The same thing with the Great American Songbook Foundation, where we work with high school kids with our annual Songbook Academy. And these kids listen to all the pop music on the airwaves. And once they discover standards, those songs become a part of their lives. Absolutely true. By the way, I'm just curious, this is a little side note, but did you get a chance, did you see Sean Hayes at all perform in in, uh, Goodnight Oscar? Yes, yes. I saw it in Chicago, and I was at the opening. You did? Yes. Call me! (laughs) Well, I will now. Uh, And I was was at the opening night on Broadway, and I, um, uh, behind the scenes, was sending Sean recordings of Oscar and anecdotes and clips and all kinds of stuff, because I have this 
huge collection of Levant memorabilia as well, which may may or may not be a shock. <laughs> not a shock. Although I, I actually gifted him a, a signed book by Oscar Levant. Maybe you gave him the same one. I don't know. Uh, no, no, that's wonderful. That's a nice gift. Uh, yeah, I, I saw the show a couple. I mean, it was an absolutely sold out performance here. Uh, and I'm sure Sean would be happy we're talking about that, but that's, that's not meant to be the focus. I was just going to note that the fact that he played Donnell, uh, Rhapsody in Blue. I don't know if you saw the show, but Rhapsody in Blue, he actually played it. People thought it was a player piano or something fake. He actually played it and he's magnificent. Yes, he was magnificent. And Donnell, before we lose Michael, let me just ask you, um, what has Michael's contribution when you think of the world of classical music and the tie into the films and all of that? And as it relates to Jose, your godfather, how important has Michael been to this entire trend? I'll give you a hint. Very. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to ask you. <laughs> but, you know, okay, first, yeah, he really is. But first and foremost, let me tell you, with the Hosea Turby, uh, from Hollywood to the world, this unred- the rediscovered recordings of the pianist and conductor Hosea Turby, I have to tell you, uh, and all of your listeners and viewers, you must get this because Michael is a phenomenal, and my favorite word to describe Michael and this project, he's a phenomenal wordsmith. It is so wonderful to read. I mean, Michael, am I right or not? When we reviewed this, I mean, I think there were very few changes that I, I saw uh, in anything because I was just so overwhelmed with Michael's talent. He's multi-talented. He's a Renaissance man, let me just tell you. I know that we're here talking about this uh, book and the 16 CD collection and Hosea Turby, but Michael really is a force to be reckoned with in a very good way. Uh, he uh, constantly surprises me with one great thing after the next. And in fact, this weekend, we're going to see Michael conduct the Pasadena Pops Orchestra. Uh, it's fabulous with the tribute oh. to Broadway with Christine Ebersole. I mean, it's like amazing. Oh. This man never stops. He reminds me very much of my godfather. Michael, did you hear that? Wow. Um, I'm, I'm humbled. Thank you. Well, I will add to that. First of all, tell Christine I said hello. I, I emceed a gig with her once. Um, but, but also I, I will tell you when I saw what you wrote, I just said, okay, it's probably Michael Feinstein, but then it'll say with so and so, you know, uh, when you get the big name, but then you attach that real writer. But it, no, it was just you. So I went, all right, this is his writing. And look, I've written 15 books. They're not great, but I've written them. And I just, I read your word. And I, they were just, it was truly gripping. And the, by the way, the fact that the design of the book again, that it's not just, we don't just get the Michael Feinstein chapter and then we get into everything else. You're, you sort of appear uh, in the first few sections of the book as you move the story along and are assisted by the photos and, uh, and other kinds of things. So, yeah, it's a masterwork of art, Michael. And um, I just want to thank you. Uh, again, I know you've got to go. I'm trying to want to abuse your time. So, number one, happy birthday. Number two, thanks for being with us. Uh, and number three, I can't wait for your next project. And when you're in Chicago, you got to call. I promise I will. And thank you very, very much for, um, for this experience and for um, helping people to remember Jose. We will continue to do that. And Danelle, hang with me for a little bit if we can. Um, thank you, Michael. Love you. You too. Bye. Bye. So, Danelle, for let me just ask you the for getting this book. So, I looked at it. I don't see a price on the book. I wasn't on the materials that came with me, and I think it's because I I'm seeing this as Christmas time. I mean, I just look at this. I'm going. This is a Christmas gift. That's we're doing this in time for all of that. It's kind of tacky. Can you give us some of that details? Like, what will, will people find it on Amazon? How do we get it? Yes, it's a lo- it's on Amazon. It's at Barnes and Noble, and it's on many online booksellers. And uh, the 
price, I think, is $125, but it's for 16 CDs and a 180-page book with fabulous colored photographs uh, involved. And and it's a great story of my godfather. Uh, And I've noticed that Amazon, once in a while, if you just get it at the right moment, it's like $80, so, uh, and they have only a few at that price, and then it goes back to its full price. But it's amazing, you know, what's out there. But uh, when you do the math and you divide it up, you realize, oh, it's only, you know, $5 or $7 a CD, and you get this book in it. You know, it's phenomenal when you think about it. W- I was value. And I know, and I thank you because I know the copy I got came from you. I know, to be honest, I know Sony was to send it to me and Sony is Sony. Um, but I know that you had said he needs to see this before we talk about it. And you got it in my hands. And I just, I've only had it a couple of days and I, I just couldn't put it down. I mean, literally the last couple of days, I have completely gone through every page of the book. Um, I haven't listened to every CD, but I, you know, I familiarized myself with so much of what was there. So I thank you for allowing that to happen because I'd kind of be swimming a little bit without that. I do want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the Hollywood Museum, because during the pandemic, when things were so I, I want to interrupt you just a moment. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut because, you off. Go ahead. No, no, no. Because I want to share with you, you know, uh, for your viewers and listeners, so many of my friends here in Hollywood, many of them producers and directors, I've sent the copy of the book for them to see the flip side of what I do besides the Hollywood Museum. Uh, and I've had several of them come to me who are very busy. And uh, it's it's just kind of amazing. They have told me. You know, every evening with my wife or with my partner, we sit down, we have a drink before dinner, and we listen to one CD, and we are just amazed. And then we read a little bit about the book, and it's it's provided them with entertainment, but fun entertainment. And I think what they all love is that it's so enjoyable to listen to the CDs, look at the photographs, and at the same time, they're learning something about a great name from Once Upon a Time. Um, so you and I have lots of mutual friends, um, from Kathy Garver to, uh, Stan Livingston. In fact, Stan actually had at the museum, you had a children's exhibit and you had his house shoes from his house slippers from, um, uh, my three sons as Chip. Yes. But they're in my yes. living room now, just so you know. And <laughs> along with all sorts of other things, as I said, I'm quite the, quite the collector. So I can't wait to get out and see the museum, but we also did a lot of shows you may not even know, but during the pandemic, um, working with people tied to you who were doing the Hollywood squares and Bruce Valanche and all those folks yes, try yes. and help you raise some money. But I guess the good news, and I don't know if you're behind a green screen or whether that's just the exhibit behind you, but um, you made it. You got through it all. Well, we're thrilled. This year, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary of being open to the public. It's hard to imagine the Hollywood Museum is 20 years old this year. And I am just in front of our exhibit to the Pointer Sisters. And Anita Pointer, this is a collection she had that she saved. for. It took 50 years to pull this together. And it's of her and her sisters with these phenomenal costumes. The museum is quite extraordinary, I must say. Yeah. And, and and again, I'm so glad you, you kind of made it through. And people need to know because there's exhibits. Can you share just a couple of the things that are coming up that if people are find themselves in Hollywood? Actually, Absolutely. the last time I must say the last time I because I'm wondering why I haven't seen it. And that's because I'm just in and out of L.A. and stuff very quickly to give a speech or something. But the last time I was there, I taught at Pepperdine. You weren't open yet because it was OJ time. So it was before you opened. That's why I haven't been in the museum, but I need to rectify that. Well, you know, we're located in the historic Max Factor building uh, where, you know, Max Factor was Hollywood's makeup king. He made all the movie stars look glamorous from the golden era all the way through the 70s. And 
Uh, I'm just thrilled that I was able to uh, talk the owners of the Max Factor building into selling this building to us. It was not for sale when I was looking to start the museum. The owners were uh, Procter & Gamble, who owned Max Factor at the time that I wanted to purchase this building. And so uh, I had to talk them into doing it, and we did. Luckily, it took us several years. Uh, but we were successful in being able to purchase this building for the Hollywood Museum. Well, you know what? I'll have to either put on loan or somehow, but get to you. I have, um, speaking of Max Factor, I have Lucille Ball's makeup uh, kit that she used to keep in her limo uh, that I got from her driver, Frank, and uh, and also have oh, Frank. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, who passed away a few years ago, I think. But uh, And also have um, Jerry Lewis's entire makeup kit for when he turned himself into a clown. Oh my goodness, that I did not know. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah, so much. Well, we'll have stuff. to talk about that. <laughs> oh, exactly. Well, that's what I said. I mean, that's why I kind of wanted to switch. I want to at least get a hello on the Hollywood Museum in. Uh, the website, so people can visit the website. It's www.thehollywoodmuseum.com. Danelle, it's a must see. I'm going to, next time I'm in LA, I'm coming to visit with you. Let's do lunch, as we say I'd in love Hollywood. To, and I'd love to give you a personal tour of the museum. I will we take have you. more than 10,000 exciting treasures for everyone to look at. There's something for everyone here at the Hollywood Museum. Thank you so much. And thanks for being with me. And congratulations on Hosea Turby. It's a magnificent book from Hollywood to the world. Thank you. Thank you.